You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Mr. Ambassador, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Thomas Carruthers, Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And it's my pleasure to host today's session on Can the Turkish Model Gain Traction in the New Middle East? In recent years, Turkish foreign policy has been attracting increasing attention in Washington. Building on its economic dynamism, Turkey has been asserting itself more uh, throughout the region in which it's situated, but especially the Middle East. Turkey's relations with Iran, with the Arab world, and with Israel have, of course, been attracting a lot of attention and sometimes friction here in Washington. With the recent events in the Arab world, called these days the Arab Spring or the Arab Awakening, there's even more attention to Turkey's foreign policy. Turkey has had to revise some of its basic precepts of its policy in the Middle East, particularly with respect to Syria, for example, where it's gone from a policy of close cooperation with the Syrian government to a much more challenging stance. And here in Washington, the question of whether or not the Turkish model uh, is applicable uh, to the Arab states, as some of them at least attempt political transitions, has become much discussed, often discussed in rather superficial ways, I think, but fortunately, uh, it's also possible to go into the subject in a much deeper and profound way. That's what Sinan Ulgun has done in his paper, which you have before you, From Inspiration to Aspiration. Sinan is uh, chairman of the Center for Economics and Foreign Policy Studies in Istanbul, and he's also a visiting scholar with Carnegie Europe based in Brussels and also comes to Washington regularly to work with us here in Washington. So it's a pleasure to welcome Sinan here today uh, to talk about that. We also have two distinguished commentators on my immediate right, Marwan Washer, who is Vice President for Studies here at Carnegie and oversees our Middle East program. Marwan, of course, was Deputy Prime Minister of Jordan and Foreign Minister of Jordan, and also served as Senior Vice President at the World Bank. On my left, Thomas Duvall, Senior Associate in the Russian and Eurasian Program, here at Carnegie Washington. Tom is a noted expert on the Caucasus, but has also given considerable attention to Turkey in the course of his career, as well as Russia, has an additional regional perspective. So I'm going to turn first to you, Sinan, to set out your basic argument. And then we'll hear some perspectives from Marwan, particularly a bit the view from the Arab world on this, and then Tom Duvall on sort of larger regional questions. Without further ado, Sinan, welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be here and to get the opportunity to speak before a Washington audience, uh, and even if it's a pre-Christmas week. Uh, now, when the Arab revolt started, there was quite a bit of interest in the Turkish model. And I thought a paper on this would actually be interesting. My fear was that by the time I would have finished the paper, it was published, all that talk about the Turkish model would disappear. Uh, but I was lucky. Uh, there is still quite a bit of interest in this Turkish model. And in some way, I must also perhaps thank uh, Ali Ekber Velayeti, who is the advisor to the uh, supreme leader Khamenei in Iran, who just four days ago stated Iran's position on this matter, uh, which was that Turkey can never be a model for the Islamic awakenings. So... Uh, there is indeed uh, a number of different viewpoints of whether Turkey can be a model, but beyond that, in what ways Turkey can be a model? Because when you look at the people who have championed Turkey as a model, they range from uh, Secretary of State Clinton, 
to Tantawi in Egypt, uh, including Ganesh, Ganushi in Tunisia. So a very different sort of uh, a cornucopia of different people, really, uh, talking about the Turkish model. So there really has been a selective reading about what Turkey is and the Turkish model is. So the first thing that I wanted to do in this paper, and this is what I want to do with you uh, as well, is really to demystify what the Turkish model is about. For me, there are five core features of the Turkish model. One is how Turkey has been able to combine uh, political Islam, democracy, in a, uh, and, and the principle of secularism. And in particular, how Turkey has been able to manage the rise of political Islam in a formally democratic and secular setting. Now, when I look uh, at that perspective, uh, there are three fundamental observations. One is that uh, despite its shortcomings, the Turkish democratic system has allowed political Islam to emerge and to hold on uh, to political power. Uh, I will talk a little bit about the role of the military when I talked about the civil-military relations, uh, but nonetheless, that really has been uh, the experience of Turkey where we have seen the first rise of political Islamist parties in the early 1960s, uh, and which have led after a number of different transformations uh, to uh, the AKP that rules uh, the Turkey of today. The second fundamental observation in terms of the Turkish experience in managing political Islam is really the real-world political experience that the Islamists have gained in local government. That really has, uh, when I look back at least, that really has uh, allowed uh, the, the current cadres of uh, the, uh, the ruling party to, to get uh, real-world experience about, about the political world. And uh, this has really helped them to transform and to acquire a sense of pragmatism uh, that has helped them uh, in, in governing at the national level. And the third observation is that the Turkish democratic system was mature enough and it gave enough confidence to the political actors that Turkish Islamists never resorted to violence. Uh, so there was always the belief that if you play by the rules of democracy, uh, you would be able to acquire political power. So this widespread belief about alternance of political power through democratic means uh, is, is, to me at least, one of the characteristic features uh, of Turkey. Now, when I look, again, uh, when we look back at what happened in Turkey, is that at the end of the day, the Turkish experience, the Turkish democracy, has eventually managed to midwife conservative slash Islamist parties wedded to the principles of secularism, democracy, and a democratically driven alternation of political power. So I'm not going to go into the reasons, but when I look, when I take a snapshot of this first characteristic of uh, the, Turkish, uh, the Turkish model. Uh, I think this is how I can, uh, I can summarize it. My second uh, point, uh, or the second feature of the Turkish model, is really about the civil-military relationship. 
for a long time, uh, Turkish democracy was influenced uh, by, uh, by, by the military. The, the military uh, has played uh, a major role in influencing political developments in Turkey. But in particular, as a watchdog of the Republican principles. And, as a, and this is the role that uh, the military has played in the past, which has, in a way, and perhaps paradoxically, has helped political Islam to emerge under its current form. Because when we look at the history of how political Islam developed in Turkey, the first few iterations of political Islam were banned by the military. They were banned because they were thought to be too radical. And it's only after these arguably non-democratic measures that uh, political Islam uh, acquired uh, its, its current characteristics uh, in Turkey. And this is how we can really explain the transformation over three decades uh, from uh, the initial uh, setup to the uh, AKP uh, of today. So the military has really shaped interaction between uh, democracy uh, and, and political Islam through its role of being the guardian of republican values. And it is this role of the military that actually gave the Turkish society enough confidence to experiment with political Islam. Now, I recall I was running for parliament uh, 10 years ago now in 2002, uh, and um, I was campaigning. So I went to a neighborhood, and the neighborhood, which was you know, a middle-class neighborhood, they were very dissatisfied with the, with the government of the time, uh, and they said, uh, the person that I talked to said he would vote for this new Islamist party, AKP. And at the time, there were still quite a bit of doubts about AKP's true agenda. So I asked them, you know, well, I mean, don't you feel that AKP represents a threat uh, to Turkey's secular uh, principles? He said, well, you know, if they actually decide to play a dangerous game like that, the military is out there and the military will solve the problem. So this is just an anecdote to capture that it was the presence of the military that, again, paradoxically, uh, gave enough confidence to Turkish society to experiment uh, with, with political Islam. Uh, the challenge that Turkey faces today is that now that the military has lost uh, its political power, uh, society has to find a new and much more democratic order to establish the checks and balances that existed before on political power. And this is the challenge in many ways uh, that Turkey faces today, uh, to replace the military tutelage with the right constitutional democratic norms of checks and balances. And uh, here the record is not very, very clear. Now, the third feature of the Turkish model is the market-state relationship. Uh, the Turkish economy uh, has started its uh, program of economic liberalization back in 1980. Uh, then there was uh, another episode of uh, global trade integration with the, with the customs union with the EU at the end of 1995. So today what we have in Turkey in terms of the market-state relationship is a business community that is independent of the government. And I think that is one of the core characteristics uh, of the Turkish model, especially when we compare it with some of the countries where this model could potentially be, uh, be translated. 
the second aspect here in terms of the market-state relationship is really the disciplining effect that globalization, integration with the global economy has had on Turkey's economic governance. Uh, so these two factors, uh, again, uh, from a more uh, perhaps uh, s- synthetic uh, perspective, are uh, what, uh, what defines uh, the market-state relationship in Turkey. The fourth feature is Turkey's links to the West. I'm not going to go at great length about what those links are. Uh, you know them, uh, the transatlantic partnership, NATO, EU, Uh, which uh, really has helped to create uh, the uh, modern-day Turkey in many ways. One particular uh, entity that I would want to highlight nonetheless, which I think did not really capture the type of attention that it deserves, is Council of Europe. Because Turkey's membership uh, to the Council of Europe, and in particular the decision of the government in 1987 to allow the right for individual petition to the European Court of Human Rights was a radical step that basically allowed Turkey to import and to enforce European norms in the area of democracy, again, with all its uh, blemished track record, democracy and human rights. But this factor, the the Council of Europe membership and and the, uh, the fact of accepting almost a supranational entity Uh, like the um, uh, European Court of Human Rights, uh, to be able to pass pass verdicts on the human rights situation in Turkey, to overturn court cases in Turkey, is really uh, one feature that I think uh, did not get the deserved enough attention uh, in explaining uh, the Turkish model. Uh, and finally, uh, the fifth feature uh, to me is Turkey's uh, state tradition. Democracy, in essence, it's about, it's about the acceptance of dissent. You can't have democracy if you don't have tolerance for dissent. And if you have strong state institutions, that in a way facilitates uh, this acceptance of dissent. And that is what Turkey had. Uh, because of its imperial legacy, the Ottoman Empire, and this whole bureaucratic tradition that was carried over to the Republic, uh, has always allowed Turkey to have a strong sense of the state and a very developed professional bureaucracy. Uh, and I think this is also something uh, that, that merits attention in, in understanding what the Turkish model is. So fundamentally, it's the interaction between these five core features that defines uh, the Turkish model. The question, the second question, once we have defined the Turkish model, is to look at the relevance of this model. How relevant the Turkish model is, how uh, in, in, in order to understand, in order to help, in order to assist uh, the Arab countries in transition. Now, at first blush, you may want to argue that, okay, there's Turkey out there, but all of these different features are Turkey-specific features. And they're not easily transposable, they're not easily replicable, so we can't really spend too much time talking about uh, the Turkish model because it doesn't really have a relevance beyond Turkey's borders. Now, it is true that there's no simple and direct way to apply the Turkish model in its totality. 
But I would argue that there are smarter ways to leverage the Turkish model or the Turkish experience. Now, why do I think that? Because one, as Huntington had stated in his book on, on the third wave of, democ of, the, of democratization, he talks about the, uh, uh, an effect of um, uh, an effect where past transition, past democratic experiences have a bearing on countries that want to start these type of uh, democratic experience. So this demonstrative effect that Huntington talked about mainly for the countries of Central and Eastern Europe uh, has relevance for Turkey. Uh, I think it works. It works not because what Turkey is intent of doing, and I'll talk about what, how we can operationalize the Turkish model, but it works because what Turkey is. It works by giving an example of how these different sort of features uh, interact to create uh, the model, the success that Turkey is today in many ways. So this demonstrative effect uh, is even stronger, as uh, Huntington argued, uh, when you have such an example in your own neighborhood. And that is what Turkey is. The second uh, issue or argument that I would put forth for why the Turkish model is relevant is really an argument about cultural affinity. It is more meaningful for the countries in the region to see what happens in Turkey with all its faults than going beyond Turkey and looking at the European experience or the Latin American experience or the South Asian, uh, Southeast Asian experience. Uh, so that cultural affinity argument is the, third, is the second one. And the third one is the fact that Turkey is still a work in progress. It's not an unblemished democracy, but curiously enough, that is why the Turkish model is a potent model. It's because Turkey has all its faults, all these faults, all these deficiencies still, whether it's in the area of democracy, human rights, economic, uh, economic standards, that it appeals to the Arab world. Because this is the type of setup that they can relate to. Uh, now, these are arguably, as economists would say, these are mostly supply-side driven arguments. But they're also demand-side driven arguments. And here I will refer to some of the polling that was done. Uh, one, a very recent one, and one of the authors here is here in the audience, so he can speak at, uh, you know, more, in a more detailed manner than me. But uh, in, 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 one of, in one of the polls that was done throughout the region, uh, the question that was asked, conducted by the University of Maryland, is who played the most constructive role in the Arab Spring? Which country played the most constructive role? Which two countries, excuse me, played the most constructive role in the Arab Spring? And Turkey was clearly ahead of the field. Out of the 200% perfect <coughs> record, Turkey got 50%. The second country that came after Turkey was France with 25%, so half of, the, uh, half of the support. Then there was another question in that poll. They asked Egyptians, is, you know, what sort of political system would you like to see in your country? And, yeah, and, and the authors gave a number of different uh, countries as example. 
Turkey came out first with 44%. Uh, France, the second country, with 10%. Saudi Arabia with 8%. Now, I think it's interesting, especially in light of the success of the you know, Nur Party uh, in the elections, why in a poll... Uh, only 8% of the Egyptians would say they would want to have Saudi Arabia as a model for their political governance. And the new party got, what, 24-25% of the vote. Uh, another example is from the 2001 uh, Arab, uh, Arab Attitude Survey, where uh, they looked at the, uh, the policies of different countries. And the support for Turkish policies in the Arab world were astounding. Uh, 80% in Morocco, 98% in Saudi Arabia, 93% in Lebanon with Hezbollah, and only 45% in Jordan, Marwan. Maybe you can explain that. Now, I think that this shows that Turkey has a vastly improved image in the Arab world. And it is this image that essentially helps Turkish leaders you know, to like to talk about Turkey's soft power. But it's really this popularity, which we see in the polls, that undergrades Turkey's soft power and uh, shapes Turkey as a real actor, as a policy-relevant actor uh, to, uh, to work uh, in this neighborhood. Now, if that is indeed the case, how is it that Turkey can operationalize, can leverage uh, this soft power. Uh, if we accept that the Turkish model, again, some talk about Turkey as a source of experience, not to sound too imperial, uh, how can we leverage this? How can we operationalize this? Uh, because so far the discussions that uh, we have had had dealt mostly with the definition of the Turkish model and they were mostly theoretical discussions. So I think there was a need to think beyond that and to look at if we wanted to, both the, from the standpoint of policymakers in Ankara, but really from a more global perspective, the international community, especially the, the transatlantic community, what can it do with Turkey in the game? And in the paper, I'll outline a number of different policy areas. I will not talk about all of them, but just a select few. But let me just go through the list. Uh, the list includes political party reform, security sector reform, uh, economic governance issues, trade policy reform, financial sector reform, social policy reform, including housing policy, private sector development, regulatory capacity building. These are all areas where I think uh, the Turkish experience can actually be brought to bear. Now, I will talk only about uh, three of those today. Uh, for, uh, and the first one is really about political party reform. What we have seen in the Arab world is this desire to, uh, for the political Islamists in particular to associate themselves with the Turkey's ruling party, with the success of AKP in Turkey. So we have seen, for instance, uh, the same name even uh, uh, given to a party in Morocco, a very similar name with the Brotherhood's party uh, in Egypt, 
uh, we have seen a number of different statements coming out of the politicians, uh, in particular by, by Ganushi in Tunisia, uh, basically reflecting the fact that they want to appear as the AKP of their own constituency. And I think the reason is, is, is basically they're using the reference to AKP as a way to appease their own constituencies about their own agenda, given that these are relatively new parties coming to power. Uh, and that gives a lot of leverage to, to the Turkish ruling party. Uh, there are a number of already informal contacts. Uh, the Turkish ruling party has helped some of those parties in their how they manage their, their campaigns and so on. But so far, these, uh, these links have not been formalized. And I think this is the next step, and it's going to be a very interesting step. It's going to be a very interesting step because it's going to be the first time that Turkey will start to become a player in the game of cross-border cross party collaboration. Turkey does not have the experience that the U.S. has with NDI and IRI, Scott. Uh, and uh, Turkey does not have the experience of the political stiftungs of the Germans. So it's really going to be the first time that we shall see, I think, the emergence of Turkey as a serious player in this neighborhood in uh, helping political parties, uh, and, mo and mostly in this case, the parties that emerge uh, from political Islam. The second, uh, uh, again, policy area where I want to focus a little bit is, is trade policy reform. Um, trade policy reform because when we look at the economics that now uh, have become a real obstacle to political reform in those countries, one way to overcome the, the, the difficult economic problems of the region is through trade liberalization. Now, you may, you, may, you may claim that there's already the EU acting on the basis of the uh, Barcelona uh, process that was put into place in 1995 as the driver of trade liberalization in the region. But when you take stock uh, of what has actually happened since 1995, so we're talking 16 years back, that blueprint has not worked. It has only helped to consolidate the EU's market share in that region, but it hasn't really helped those economies to become more liberal. It hasn't helped those economies to acquire competitiveness globally, and it certainly has not helped to foster intra-regional integration in the region. So the idea here is to extend the Turkey-EU customs union to the whole region. Because by that simple step, uh, many of the obstacles, both political obstacles, and there are a number of political obstacles. Today, Algeria and Morocco cannot have free trade between them. They can't conclude a free trade agreement. But if we're able to extend the Turkey-EU customs union to the whole region, that would be a way to, to very, in a way, aesthetically overcome some of the problems that have undermined uh, the creation of this, uh, this zone uh, of, uh, of uh, seamless trade in the region. Another example is financial sector reform. Now, 
when we look at where the, uh, where the financial sector stands in those countries, you may, well, you may argue that actually it's not too bad you know, in terms of their level of income, they have enough financial deepening. The problem is that that financial deepening has not translated into an effective system uh, that fuels uh, growth, uh, that allows access to capital. That is the main predicament of, uh, of the financial system in those countries. And that is because in the old days, most of the financial lending was based on politically motivated decisions, on connected lendings. So you could get access to money if you knew somebody or if you were close to the government. So this is, this is to a great extent, the handicap that the Turkish banking system had in the old days, in the 1990s. And that is exactly the type of reform that Turkey was able to undertake very successfully uh, uh, as, as the resilience of the Turkish financial industry demonstrates today, uh, due to the program that was run by Kemal Dervish, who's also here. Uh, and this is a replicable experience because Turkey operates in a very similar environment. We, ha we also have a very large informal economy. We also had very weak regulatory institutions. And it's this experience of overhauling all the financial sector, which is so critical to usher in a sustainable growth in, in those countries. That is one of the areas where I think the Turkish experience is relevant. And my final example will deal with uh, a model, uh, a public-private partnership model that, is, that may not be as well known here on this side of the, of the Atlantic, but which is ultimately very, has been very instrumental in allowing the Turkish ruling party to gain elections after elections. And that is the housing policy. The, uh, the, the ruling party has devised a public-private partnership which allowed the government to develop mass housing in a very affordable way and to distribute those housing uh, units to the less, uh, less advantageous, uh, the more uh, poor sections uh, of Turkish society. This has been a phenomenal success the way the system that was, uh, that was put. So because it is, it, it is a public-private partnership. It is about risk sharing. It's about management of financial flows. It's about a very efficient sales and marketing and so on. And there's a very big demand now uh, for a number of countries, not only in the region, but even Venezuela, the Chavez government, wants to import this know-how. So I think this is also an area and I have other examples where Turkish experience in terms of uh, coming up with innovative ways to manage social policies can actually be uh, applied in the region. Now, to conclude, um, I think regardless of the terminology that we want to use, whether Turkey is a model, whether it's a source of inspiration, uh, there is an added value here. Uh, Turkey has, I think, uh, a lot of assets that it can uh, bring to bear uh, on Arab transitions. Uh, 
uh, it has a lot to contribute to this process. And the recent developments in the Arab world has only increased, enhanced Turkey's policy relevance. It's only with a transition to democracy in that region that we can actually talk about a policy-relevant Turkish model. Because before then, when Arab societies didn't really have an option to choose to make decisions about their own future, it was really moot to talk about the model. It was you know, a theoretical discussion. It is now that this discussion is much more important, much more policy relevant, because the people in the region, hopefully in all parts of the region, uh, will have this freedom to choose. And it is with this freedom to choose that uh, the importance and the policy relevance of the Turkish model uh, comes, uh, becomes much more important. And this is a great value, this is a great asset, uh, also for the transatlantic partnership. We have seen in the past 60 years two big episodes of transatlantic cooperation. One, after the Second World War, and two, after 1989. In both of those episodes, Turkey was a non-player. This time around, there is another opportunity, and that is to help the Arab transitions. This has the potential to become a very critical pillar, uh, almost at the same level as the two prior episodes of transatlantic cooperation. And here, Turkey is very likely to play a much bigger role uh, a much more important role. So the question that I want to leave you with is how can we invent, design, engineer the multilateral instruments to allow this cooperation to emerge? Because today we don't have those. Thank you. Sinan, thank you. A terrific presentation, full of interesting ideas and a lot to discuss. You've, you've presented, in a sense, from the perspective, as you said, of supply. Um, let's look at it from the per How does this look from within the Arab world, looking towards Turkey, and uh, in a sense, from demand? And so, Marwan, would you give us some additional perspective on this, Tom? Sure. <coughs> Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Sinan, for a very, very interesting presentation. I think the to me, the most important uh, 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 part of this uh, paper is that it has passed the Turkish model. In other words, I think it is very difficult, if not impossible, for any one group or country in the Middle East to look at the Turkish model in its entirety and adopt it en masse. Uh, take the issue of you know, secularism in the Turkish model. There is no country or group in the Middle East, in, in the Arab world, that, that is, <clears throat> that would adopt the kind of secularism that is there in the Turkish model, I think, today. However, if you look at the different attributes of the Turkish model, then I think there is something there for everybody. And people will pick and choose from the Turkish model uh, as they make the transition to democracy. Uh, and I think it will indeed uh, uh, be a very important and valuable model to look at if it is parsed 
rather than if it is looked at uh, in its entirety. And I'll explain, uh, I'll explain what I mean. Let me first remind us all that the relationship between Turkey and the Arab world has not been a good one until only very recently. Uh, the Ottoman history, the break away from the Arab language, the look to the West, the relationship with Israel, I mean, all these are uh, examples of where the Arab world and uh, Turkey, Turkey looked in opposite directions for a very long time. And the other thing I want to point out is when Turkey started to become popular in the Middle East prior to the Arab uprisings, it was not because of its model of democracy. It was because of Mr. Erdogan's view and position on the Arab-Israeli conflict. That is what made Mr. Erdogan popular in the Middle East, not his model of democracy, but his position on the Arab-Israeli conflict. That has started to change now with the Arab uprisings. The Arab uprisings brought a new element where people in the Arab world now are looking for answers. They made the, uh, you know, they, they were able to topple old regimes, but they have not yet been able, to, of course, to build new structures in the absence of civil society, in the absence of strong party, political party cultures. And so everybody now is looking for answers. And there, Turkey, you know, has the potential of providing uh, answers uh, uh, on, on a number of different questions. I think it is interesting to note, that's at least my view, is that before the Arab uprisings, the Islamists in the Arab world were pointing out to the Turkish model to calm down the political establishments in the Arab world and tell them, look, Islam can coexist with democracy. After the success of Islamists in the Arab world, it is the seculars in the Arab world now that are looking at the Turkish model and saying, hmm, maybe Islam can coexist with democracy. <laughs> so so uh, I think, I think, uh, I think, after the, the success of the Islamists, it's the secularists now that are having a closer look at the Turkish model than the Islamists. So far, only Nahda in Tunisia has uh, publicly and, and sort of embraced the Turkish model uh, as, as uh, a model they want to emulate. No other Islamist party in the Arab world has come out and said, yes, we want to uh, uh, you know, take the Turkish model as our uh, as our model. Uh, the other point I want to make uh, 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 is about the role of the military, uh, Sinan, also. In Turkey, the army sort of uh, uh, played a role as the guardians of the system in Turkey. And as you pointed out in your paper, they did that, but they never had any interest in politics. And once they did that, they turned it over uh, at different times to a civilian uh, leadership. In the Arab world, in most countries, the army is either the system or is a you know, very strong, integral part of the system. Uh, to expect the army uh, to play the same role as uh, Turkey, uh, I think, is unrealistic. And we have seen this in Egypt. I mean, the fact that the army played the role of a security blanket in Egypt was totally out of necessity. And at the first uh, uh, sort of uh, real test, that relationship broke down and the army now is not seen in the same light that it was seen 
uh, at the beginning of the, uh, of the year. And the third point I want to make is on the economic model. Um, I think Turkey succeeded uh, in its economic model because of many factors. Some of them are in, in this room. <laughs> but uh, mainly because it, did, it implemented this model within the context of a politically diverse society and system. And therefore, you had, as imperfect as it was, you still had a system of checks and balances in Turkey that made sure that economic liberalization took part uh, within such a system. In the Arab world, which has undergone maybe a similar, in many Arab countries, economic uh, liberalization uh, uh, scheme, but it took place without a system of checks and balances without a political framework. And as such, uh, the, 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 the benefits from such uh, opening and liberalization was perceived uh, both, I think, in reality and, and perception to have gone to an elite few rather than to the general public. I say this because today economic reform and liberalization in the Arab world has acquired a very bad name. And any emerging regime is not going to be able to just import an economic model, however successful it is, if it does not uh, couple that with a parallel evolution of a political, serious political reform process. If it doesn't do that, then neither the Turkish model nor any other model would succeed in the Arab world because people today are very, very skeptical about any economic liberalization model that takes place without a system of checks and balances. I think you make a very important point about the independence of the business community in Turkey, because certainly in the Arab world, the business community is not independent, is in, to use a crude expression, is in bed with the regimes in the Arab world, uh, uh, are not interested in any kind of reform process that would rob them of their benefits. And therefore, the business community in the Arab world has not played a constructive role in uh, uh, opening up uh, uh, systems uh, in the region. And you make also, I thought, uh, another very important model, which is the move away from a rentier system to productivity. I mean, that's something that I think the Arab world needs to do if it is indeed to tackle the, the... for example, problems like unemployment, which today in most Arab countries is the number one issue in the Arab world, you will not be able to do that effectively if uh, there is no productivity in the system. And, and, and there, I think, uh, 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 foreign aid, for example, whether it is in the form of oil or whether it is in the form of assistance from, uh, uh, from, uh, from the West, has not always played a positive role in the Arab world because it has not encouraged the culture of productivity. And so far, the culture in the Arab world, the economic culture, is certainly one of a, uh, of a rentier system. Um, so what I would like to say is um, I think the Turkish model also has matured over the years. Uh, that's something that is not there in, in the Arab world. Uh, the Arab world is still going to go through uh, 
uh, a, a very bumpy road along the road to uh, stable and, and prosperous societies. Uh, and therefore, as they make this transition, I think they will find attributes of the Turkish model that are very useful. Each country and each group will find different attributes. And therefore, in my view, the Turkish model is go or attributes of the Turkish model are going to be important, useful, constructive, positive for the Arab world over time. But it's not something that is going to take place instantaneously or immediately. Thank you, Marwan. Sinan, Marwan has raised some very fundamental points. And before we turn to Tom Duvall, let me just pause over one or two of them. Marwan's a diplomat, and I think he was saying, you know, I'm not so sure about this model for the region, or let's be careful in, in, in our enthusiasm. And your first point, Marwan, is really fundamental, and I think we need to turn back to it, which is secularism and the Turkish approach to, as you however one would put it, the role of secularism in Turkish socio-political development of the last 50 years. And on the one hand, it's a bit puzzling because in some ways the Turkish model is often seen here in Washington as, well, here's an example of a country that's managed to incorporate a major Islamist party into a democracy. Yet Marwan is saying, in a sense more deeply, the place of secularism in Turkish society is something that, as you said, no Arab society currently would accept. And those two things are hard to put together. Could you... Help us understand that a bit better. When you hear that, how does it strike you, uh, this question of whether or not a fundamental element of the Turkish model is, in fact, something that no Arab society would accept? Yes, indeed. That is uh, one of the pitfalls of the Turkish model uh, because uh, when we look at how secularism, the principle of secularism, uh, came about in Turkey, uh, that was a different age and day. It was a uh, it was a top-down design uh, that uh, was implemented at the founding of the republic, uh, which slowly but gradually uh, became a, a widespread uh, principle uh, that today is not really challenged in Turkey. So that sort of social engineering uh, is not uh, available. Uh, today for Arab societies. If there is going to be secularism, that needs to be, uh, again, it's, that's a big question mark, but that needs to be uh, a bottom-up process because today that cannot anymore be a top-down process. So, uh, and that is why uh, uh, I've tried to outline all of these different elements because some of them are more transposable uh, than, uh, than the element of secularism. Uh, so, however, uh, what is interesting here is that the image that Turkey projects in the Arab world since AKP came to power, and this was in essence what the Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan said when he went to the Arab world in, in, in Egypt, is that secularism a constitutional secularism is not in opposition to, uh, to being a good Muslim. So you can be a very good Muslim while still championing constitutional secularism. Uh, and that's what he said. He said it in Egypt, he said it in Tunisia, he said it in Libya. So I think this is how we can smoothen the transition if a transition is going to happen towards a secular regime. 
That is the value of the Turkish model of today. Interesting. Let's bring Tom Deval into the picture. Thank you, Marwan. Um, um, yeah, thank you. And I'd also like to congratulate um, Sinan on a brilliant paper, which I think makes an absolutely fascinating read. I, I was also going to make a, a similar point. I mean, I'm sure, Sinan, one of the great things about your paper is that you lay out in, in such detail um, you know, a basis for its own critique. I mean, I think, I think that, that that's um, so that you're, you're, you're not... Um, promulgating something as, as a perfect model. But I, I would, again, question whether does, is this a Turkish model or, or is this a sort of something which has a, evolved a sort of managed division within Turkish society through a rather Hegelian process of, of, of a clash of, of forces? Um, and you certainly wouldn't wish the rather traumas that Turkey has gone through, all the military coups and, and the banning of parties and so on, to, in order to arrive at, at what is currently obviously rather a good product in Turkey. So that's obviously um, a question. You would wish the Turkish model on these countries, but you wouldn't wish the traumatic process which has, has given birth to this model through this clash of forces. Um, but I have a couple of sort of who questions, um, because I come at this from a different regional perspective. And um, there is a cautionary tale here, which is Azerbaijan, um, which in 91 achieved independence. Um, the language, as you know, is, is you know, basically a dialect of Turkish or, 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 or very similar. Um, and there was um, huge expectations on both sides about this great affinity that, that Azerbaijan could adopt, adopt a, a Turkish model. And yet it didn't happen. And obviously Azerbaijan being much closer than the Arab countries. Um, um, and obviously culture and history obviously mattered a lot more than, than people thought at the time. The Soviet legacy in Azerbaijan, clearly there's a different legacy in the Arab world. Um, and, you know, there's, there's problematic things, as you said, about the Ottoman legacy. So there's a sort of, um, there's a danger of, of a love affair going sour here, which I think there's a cautionary tale there which, which needs to be watched. And so the, the first two question is, who is the mediators? Who are the people who actually understand um, on both sides where the differences are and where the similarities are so that there isn't some initial embrace which, which, which goes wrong. Um, the second one is who are the, who are the implementers? Because another thing I noticed as an observer of Turkish foreign policy in the former Soviet Union is that, is that the ambition is ahead of the capacity. Um, um, and the ambition and the intentions are often very good, but because there's often... Um, well, if you look at foreign policy in particular, Turkey is coming out of a period when it was very much a rather an isolated power and now has the ambitions to be a regional power. Um, in the region I work in, um, um, a marked uh, undercapacity in terms of people who speak or Russian or understand that region, I suspect um, possibly not nearly enough Arabists within the Turkish uh, elite. Um, I... I don't have the exact figures. One of our Turkish diplomatic colleagues here can confirm them, but I, I, I think there are probably five or th 6,000 people in the Turkish foreign ministry, which is probably about a third or a quarter of an average uh, European foreign ministry. So there are, there are capacity issues. And again, that, um, and obviously across government, who are the implementers of a Turkish model? Um, and there's again, a danger in which the good intentions are there, but because there is... A, again, a lack of um, experience and just a lack of, of pure people and bandwidth that, again, um, the wrong thing gets across. Mm -hmm. So, you know, would you like to respond directly to that? Because, again, it's a 
a fundamental point. Thank you, Tom. Uh, sure. When we look at the recent uh, history of Turkish foreign policy, we see a cycle of um, of differences between ambitions and capacity, which is only now being bridged. That was the case in the early 1990s. There was a big ambition, as Tom said, for Turkey to go out there and to embrace its brethren in, in, in the Caucasus, in Central Asia, and to help them economically and politically with a minor detail that Turkey didn't have the capacity to do that at the time. And therefore, that whole vision uh, floundered rather soon, uh, soon rather than later. The difference today is that even though Turkey now has even uh, a, you know, a set of grander ambitions in the region, that has also come in parallel with a very substantial increase in state capacity, which was underpinned by Turkey's economic performance of the last 10 years. So when we look at this question of ambition and compare it to, to state capacity, there will, there will always be, to my mind, a gulf. But that gulf is being bridged. And we see that in many ways. We see it in Turkey's ambition to expand, for instance, you raised the issue, its diplomatic network. Uh, 23 new embassies in the last two years. At a time when many of our EU partners are cutting down on their diplomatic relations and diplomatic infrastructure. You see this in Turkey's official development assistance, which is now according to the statement made by the Turkish President Gulet, UN General Assembly, more than $1 billion. You see it in the ambition that Turkey has in playing a role in different international fora. So there are many different elements uh, that uh, can be given as an example of this growing state capacity for Turkey to do exactly the type of uh, policy uh, aid uh, and uh, assistance to these countries. Now, we can certainly talk about whether that is enough. And that's certainly a very, uh, very uh, justified discussion. But at the end of the day, and here I'm going to come back to my, uh, to my final point, is we should, we should certainly be aware of where the holes lie in Turkey's own infrastructure, in Turkey's own capacity. But the way to overcome these gaps is really to build this platform, these institutions that would help Turkey to leverage its own assets. And I think that's the key term, to help Turkey to leverage the assets that it has developed, to build this type of partnership, which is missing. Turkey and the US has, have what is called a model partnership. But it's an empty shell. This is high time to really plug in, to give me to this model partnership. And that would be the way, Tom, to overcome some of these institutional human resources shortcomings that Turkey has. Sinan, one more question from here before we turn to the audience. A cardinal element of Turkey's foreign policy in the second half of the last decade as it became more active in, in the broader Middle East 
was respect for sovereignty in some ways as an alternative to what was sometimes seen in the region as an intrusive approach by a number of Western countries. And Turkey instead was going to get along with Iran, going to try to continue to get along with Israel, get along with the Arab world, a policy of no problems as they described it. And that was typical of other rising democratic powers that are asserting themselves more in foreign policy like India or Brazil or South Africa or Indonesia. This strong tradition of the non-aligned movement in some cases, but a high respect for sovereignty. Yet now in this new context, you're describing a policy which is more normative, <clears throat> which has a, a core normative element in which Turkey tries to influence the domestic direction of some of its neighbors. And this, in a sense, is, it seems to me really a, a fundamental question and one I haven't seen other rising democracies really cross that threshold and accept the idea. I think if you scratch most Indian diplomats today and give them a choice between the traditional respect for sovereignty or a more interventionist policy by India, they would still say respect for sovereignty is a cardinal principle of Indian foreign policy. Is Turkey ready to cross that threshold? Yes, I think it is ready and it has shown that it is ready. Could you talk about Syria in that regard? Uh, absolutely. I think um, the former policy, which was, as you state, the, uh, encapsulated by this very nice-sounding slogan of zero problem with neighbors, has collapsed. It has collapsed in the face of the Arab Spring because fundamentally that policy meant having zero problems with regimes. And therefore, Turkey had to choose. It had to choose between support to the authoritarian regimes and it really, it really, you know, I mean, that's what, that was the cause of the prevarication on Libya, where Turkey was the last Western state to shift its allegiance to the democratic, to the opposition in Benghazi. So the Arab Spring demonstrated the fundamental incompatibility between the former policy of zero problem with regimes and the, now the new policy of support to democracy, and I say, I mean, the way I see Turkish foreign policy now has even gone beyond that. The idea, the vision now is to brand Turkey as the protector of the victimized people of the region. So it's even beyond that. Now, when you look at what Dovutol is saying, you know, this, this, these are the type of sound bites that you get from him. And uh, this now is the context which first started with Gaza, uh, with you know, Turkey uh, having a very clear line on, on the plight of the people in the Palestinians in Gaza. Then uh, in Libya, then the prime minister visit to Somalia during the uh, Muslim religious holidays, and now Syria. And this change happened really in a matter of months. It was remarkable to show the pragmatism, perhaps, of the political uh, lawmakers. Because this is a very clear departure from established practice. Turkish diplomacy was about non-interference. It was about protecting the statu quo. It was about being non-confrontational. And that's gone. Today, when we look at the policy towards Syria, Turkey is very confrontational, is very assertive. It is even supporting the Syrian National Council as well as the Free Syrian, the Free Syrian Army. So giving support to both the civilian and the military pillars of a opposition 
to a neighboring regime. Turkey used to abhor the uh, international sanctions. Now, Ankara is talking about unilateral sanctions against Syria, one of its neighbors. Let's not forget that barely a year ago, Turkey made a big effort in order to prevent, or, and it voted no at the end, at the UN Security Council, against a set of aggravated sanctions on Iran. So there is a fundamental shift in how Turkey envisions its own foreign policy. And I think there are going to be a number of both intended and unintended consequences of this shift in terms of both Turkey's relationship with its neighbors, but also Turkey's relationship with the West, which uh, might be the subject of my next paper, Tom. <laughs> Turn to the audience and get some further perspectives and, and questions on this. I'm going to ask you, we have microphones coming around, ask you to introduce yourselves. I'm going to start right there. Yeah. yeah. Microphones coming to you. Hi, uh, Marina Ottawa with the Carnegie Endowment. <clears throat> Hi, Sina. <laughs> Good to see you. I have been traveling a lot in the Middle East since the beginning of the Arab Spring, and I have talked to a lot of people in many different countries, mostly political parties, civil society organizations. And what is, I mean, and what you, the, nobody's talking about models. I mean, yes, for, uh, you know, in official speeches, it sounds good. Marwan was talking, it's reassuring the Turkish model uh, to one group or another. But what is driving, I think, the transformation in these countries is politics, is the balance of powers, is who can get what done, who can win the elections, and so on. So that uh, if we want to see uh, the possibility of a Turkish model arising, in any of the Arab countries that are undergoing a transition, I think we really need to look not at Turkey and what Turkey is doing. We need to look at what's happening domestically and what's the, real, the, the balance of powers internally. And it seems to me that on that basis, there is only one country that even remotely might be able, might at the end of the, uh, of the process, come out with something resembling the Turkish model, and that's Tunisia. Uh, Tunisia is the only country that has a secular tra uh, tradition that has survived the 80s, the 70s and the 80s. That is, it has survived the, the re-Islamization of many countries in that period. It's the only country that has not only a truly moderate Islamist party, but the moderate Islamist party is that, not, that it's not been pushed by more radical organization. I think, I think the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is pretty moderate. It has the Salafis breathing down its neck at, its, at, its, at this point, which might uh, change, uh, change uh, the situation. So if we start looking at you know, what are the, at the political players, at the factors that really are driving the transformation, I think there are very few chances of the Turkish model really developing uh, in many countries. Uh, just one more comment concerning Egypt, which is the, you know, it's the one everybody looks at because it's such a big country. Uh, one, we have, you have one element in Turkey, which is the military, that is deliberately looking at the Turkish model of the 1980s, not the Turkish model of today, but the Turkish model of the military as the, as the arbiter uh, in, uh, in the country. But you also have another factor that I don't think Turkey had, that is you have a military which is very divided. And I think it's becoming 
the impression that one gets, as far as we can judge, it's becoming more divided by the day, which is going to make it even more unlikely that this Turkish model is going to, uh, to develop in the country. Any reaction to that, Sina? Well, I mean, you are right in many respects, but what I've tried to do here is basically look at what are the different core features of the Turkish model. Secularism, as we have discussed, is certainly one key feature, but it's not the only feature. So uh, to operationalize the Turkish model, to me at least, doesn't mean to take the Turkish model as a block and impose it as such on Arab societies. And uh, what we're seeing in practice, and this is how the game will, will unravel, is to, for those societies to, do, you know, to pick and choose about what they like in the Turkish model. Now that can be, if it's not secularism, that can be the market-state relationship. That is you know, how you can uh, develop uh, and you know, sequence your economic reforms and look at the value of having an independent business community. Or what does globalization and integration with the global economy mean in terms of your own internal governance? So there are many issues like that that is part of the Turkish model. If we look at the Turkish model and if we, uh, and if we sort of uh, do not condition the Turkish model as a, uh, uh, and uh, require it to be transported as a block, but look at the different sort of features that is embedded in the Turkish model that can still be policy relevant for the future of those societies. Okay, let's say we have two gentlemen down the front. I'm going to take, if we could bring the microphone. I see you. Bring the microphone here. Sir. Thank you. My name is Aydar Kaplan. Speak up a bit, please. Uh, okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Um, my question to you, you, you alluded to it. Uh, Hold on, let's see if we can. My question to you, which you alluded to at the end, that you, it will be a uh, subject of your next uh, paper. Uh, is this, you know, this marked departure uh, for Turkey from, let's say, protecting against sanctions against Iran to seeing an aggressive relation, an aggressive attitude towards change in Syria and so on. Does it mean that Turkey now is looking to the Arab world as a natural place for it and away from Europe, or is it going to use that as leveraging a robust entry into the European, let's say, a member of the European Union? Thank let's you. go ahead and take a second. Uh, yes, Kemal. Actually, I, I, if you could introduce Kemal, yourself. To yes, Kemal Dervish from Brookings. Um, I wanted to ask Sinan, you, you, you made a very specific recommendation in terms of extension of the customs union, and I'm, by that you mean the customs union with the European customs union, right? So then linking up to also the last question, how does this whole thing fit into the Euro-Turkish relationship and the, also the Euro-Mediterranean space uh, uh, that is relevant for the, I think, for the Arab countries given their partnerships with Europe, their migration, the Arab populations in Europe, and also just the geographical proximity. Thank you. Yeah, these two fit together. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Sina. I think as things stand, there is big uncertainty about where the Turkey-EU relationship is going. Um, there is big uncertainty because there is a loss of momentum zeal on the Turkish side, and there is definitely other issues on the European agenda. 
when I was in Brussels, uh, one of the comments that I received on this is that the Turkey-EU relationship is now part of the annex of the European uh, agenda uh, with all the crisis, uh, the Eurozone crisis and so on. So whatever happens today will, be, uh, will have its own dynamic. Uh, Turkey's shift of foreign policy vision, its rapprochement with the Arab world, its more assertive role as a regional player may or may not help Turkey's EU accession, but it is not done in view of support of Turkey's accession. It has its own dynamic. Uh, it is part of Turkey's own foreign policy vision of becoming a regional power, if not to say hegemon. So, to come back to your question, Kemal Bey, how that will eventually fit in the Turkey-EU relationship, it will really depend on what sort of EU will come out from this crisis. Because the EU that we will see two years down the road will certainly not be EU of, your, of our fathers. Uh, it's going to be a very different structure. It's going to be very different to EU. It's going to have be a EU with a core and with a periphery that will in all likelihood include UK and possibly a number of other countries. So the question is how Turkey will engage with that, with that EU. The fact that Turkey now has this role, this very influential role in the Arab world, will certainly help uh, Turkey in its future negotiations with the EU. But we still don't know where those negotiations will need to because we still don't know what sort of EU will emerge from this crisis. So I think we will need to wait for at least two years uh, for this new structure to emerge with the EU and for the EU's new vision. How, how does the customs union fit into this? Okay. Uh, well, the customs union is a way to overcome many of the problems in terms of interregional integration and so on. And the customs union would be the big political idea that the EU and Turkey could jointly launch in the region. Because when we now look at what the EU is trying to do, it is behind the curve in many ways. Uh, it is behind the curve politically, it's behind the curve economically, it's behind the curve financially. So this would be a very uh, appealing way to come to the region with a big political idea of enlarging the Turkey-EU customs union. And now, and I've been talking in a number of European capitals about this, uh, this idea is starting to get traction. Uh, it has the support of a number of governments. And uh, the only people that are against it so far are the people at the DG trade in the commission because they don't want their own uh, mental route uh, to be uh, to, to be uh, criticized and and to be transformed. So uh, this is a discussion that I think will uh, will will certainly gain some traction in the EU as well. I hope. We'll take just a couple more and then we'll finish up. Although I see a lot of hands, I'll do my best, sir. And then this, and then in the back there. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Lemon at the Near East South Asia Center. Uh, Sinan, first of all, I want to compliment you on uh, this paper, which I think makes an important uh, contribution to framing and stim uh, stimulating the conversation on both sides of the, uh, of the Atlantic. Um, but I'd like to follow up uh, on two points. One is your comment about uh, giving the model partnership real substance, which I think you're right on. 
uh, real substance, particularly in terms of the rising generations, if you will, of uh, folks within the bureaucracies and the commentariat on both in both countries. I think that's really needed, and that's something that should be explored further, uh, and would help with the capacity issue that you were addressing. The second is another phenomenon that's also generational in, in its implications, which is uh, the networking, the engaging of civil societies in the region. Uh, I was in Istanbul when there was a fascinating uh, conference of the NAVA uh, uh, network and the Young Citizens Movements, uh, which uh, sought to bring together elements from across the region, uh, younger elements, the Facebookers of the world, if you will, uh, in an exchange of ideas and uh, brainstorming and sparking off one another from their differing perspectives, their differing contexts, uh, their differing experiences, and that bottoms-up approach that you were mentioning about how do you make a transition to this new paradigm, whatever it might be, in each of these different countries. Uh, the engagement of think tanks, Turkish think tanks doing outreach to counterparts as well as political parties in the region. Again, in a similar way, not trying to impose a model so much as sharing experiences and, ad and, uh, and approaches. Could you elaborate a little bit uh, more on that, uh, if just a minute? I'll take two more, and then we'll finish up. Yes, right directly behind the woman there. No, the woman right there. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Carol McDolovitz. Um, Sinan, I was very interested in your model, and I think it does have many positive... It's not his. It's Turkey's model. <laughs> <laughs> your elaboration of the Turkish model. And I think it does have many elements that would appeal to the region. However, I was wondering about the appeal of perhaps deficiencies in what's happening in Turkey. Uh, you have the AKP in power going on 10 years with no end in sight. Uh, you have a very dominant leadership, uh, personalistic leadership of the prime minister uh, and lack of overall party reform, reform of the parliamentary quota, etc., that enables the dominance of the ruling party. So um, perhaps there's other things in Turkey that appeals to some of the leaders in the Arab awakening uh, who have less of a democratic uh, mindset. Thank you. One more. Yes, sir. Yeah, right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rich Kosler from George Mason University. Assuming that this model does get promoted as you describe it, what would you expect the reaction of Iran to be? Sinan, I'd like to finish up and respond as you see fit to those three comments or questions. I'll start with Iran. The relationship with Iran is, has today become one of the uh, very clearly problematic relationships. Um, we see this uh, almost on a daily basis. Uh, Iranians have started to threaten Turkey uh, for uh, accepting to hold the uh, early warning radar system. Uh, they have constantly; they are constantly criticizing Turkey on its uh, approach to Syria. Uh, and fundamentally, this shift in Turkish foreign policy from a non-interventionist the sanctity of the state approach 
to a more normative, even being the protector of, you know, of the victimized people type approach, is going to have fundamental consequences for the relationship with Iran. Because unlike what Turkey did in the past, which was to call Ahmadinejad uh, on the day that he was elected after this, you know, the elections in 2008 where, with gross violations, and uh, President Gül going to Iran on the day at the peak of the oppressions against the Musavi, uh, Musavi regime or Musavi uh, people, and not saying a word about them in Iran, in Tehran, in its official talks, uh, that was the old Turkish policy. Today, with the new Turkish policy, a Turkish government that is criticizing Syria on how it treats its own citizens, Turkey cannot remain aloof anymore to the, uh, to the behavior of the regime in Iran. So I think that relationship, as well as the relationship with Damascus, uh, is in for a, uh, a very tense uh, period, and we already see signs of that in, in many ways. Uh, Carol, uh, there is also a section of the paper that deals with the deficiencies in the Turkish model. And, but I didn't want to go into that because I think that's, uh, I don't think that that's unimportant, but I just wanted to, to, uh, to look at what can be done constructively in the region. But certainly there are deficiencies in Turkey's own democratic system. These deficiencies are possibly becoming more apparent now. And with the fundamental shortcoming of not really having uh, checks and balances uh, in the system, uh, which allows the political party that's in power uh, to enlarge day after day uh, its influence over the Turkish state. And that's not just the executive. That's all branches of the Turkish state and even beyond. Uh, that's the threat that Turkish democracy is facing. But having said that, and I hear this argument very often, how can Turkey be a model because it has its own deficiencies in its democratic order? Now, that's true, but that's also like saying, okay, uh, in a way, what is out there other than the Turkish model? So if you're going to compare to Iran, which is also trying to play this role, even with all its deficiencies, uh, the Turkish model is, is likely to remain much more attractive. And uh, in a way, it works in practice. It, it works in practice because of the demand side figures that I've tried to share with you. Despite its shortcomings, Turkey and the Turkish model remains appealing. So it's like this French intellectual who is looking at, you know, this thing works in practice, but what will it work in theory? <laughs> I think it works in practice. Now, on civil society engagement, um, again, uh, Turkey is rather new to this, to this game. There are a number of uh, informal links that have been formed uh, on the party level but also, interestingly, on the uh, humanitarian aid level. There are a number of Islamic NGOs of Turkish origin uh, that have a, uh, quite a significant footprint in the region. Uh, now, beyond that, uh, at the level of think tanks, uh, academics, uh, it's still very, very slim. It is slim because, as Tom said, 
you know, there's a language barrier. At the end of the day, Turks are not Arabs. We don't speak Arabic. And we don't possibly have at this point enough people that do in the policy circles, in academic circles. So that's certainly a handicap. Uh, it's a handicap in the type of work that we do in Turkey. It's a handicap for the policy world as well. Uh, but there's now an enormous interest uh, for Turkey to expand its human resources. Uh, and uh, so I think that is going to certainly be the type of development that we shall see more and more in the future. I think, no, sorry, we're sorry. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we're short of time, and Marwan would like to make a final comment. I'm afraid, sorry, sir, we're, we're just about out of time. Marwan, and if Tommy would like to say anything else, you could. Well, I, I think it would be more accurate not to talk about a Turkish model once again, but to talk about attributes of a Turkish experience that can be applied to different groups and countries. Because, and I think Sinan agrees with that, that we cannot talk about a Turkish model in its entirety. That's the first one uh, uh, point I want to make. The second one is that I believe much of the interest in the Turkish model, again, especially in the West, is because of the secular and secularism in Turkey, which, as I said before, does not apply to the Arab world. I think the best one can hope for in the Arab world is to talk about states in which religious parties will play an important role, but within a democratic context. Uh, but to talk about uh, uh, you know s secular uh, uh, regimes in the Arab world, uh, I think is not possible. And the final point I want to make is, I think that if we can talk about a Turkish model, I think the best or one of the best things can, that can happen to Turkey that might positively affect uh, 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 groups in the Arab world making the transition to democracy is something that has not happened yet in Turkey which is what happens when the IKP loses uh, uh, the elections. Uh, if the IKP, and I, I, I don't have a reason to expect that they won't, if they voluntarily give up power uh, to someone else, that is the best sort of example that can calm down a lot of people in the Arab world that uh, will, will, will believe that a peaceful rotation of power is possible within or in an Islamic uh, uh, society. Thank you. Marwan, so are you saying they should voluntarily lose elections? <laughs> voluntarily give up? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. One final comment from Tom. Yeah. Just very briefly, just just to reiterate that the, the, the kind of cautionary point that we have been here before, that in the early 90s, the newly, the Turkic post-Soviet states emerged into independence. There was an expectation that the Turk, Turkish model could be applied here, there. It didn't work. And I think um, we wish this second experiment greater success, but it's worth reviewing why that didn't fail last time as, as you seek, I think, a very, you know, to promote a very good model for the Middle East. Sinan, you've taken us far beyond the easy generalizations typical in Washington about the Turkish model, and Marwan and Tom, you've added an important dimension to that. We look forward to your next paper, but thank you for coming and sharing this one with us. Thank you. Thank